0: Hello everybody, welcome to the 80th live episode of Ask Abhijit. It's great to be back with you all again. Today, as you know, is the 125th birth anniversary of one of India's greatest sons, one of India's greatest freedom fighters, Subhash Chandra Bose. So let us take a moment to remember the great man's contributions to the India that we live in today. So the freedom that you all enjoy today, it's not because of Mr. Mohandas Gandhi or Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru or Mr. Patel or any of the freedom fighters you are taught about in school. The freedom, whatever semblance of freedom we are enjoying today is because of Subhash Chandra Bose, a genuine freedom fighter, not a fake freedom fighter. Subhash Chandra Bose was a genuine freedom fighter who put his life on the line. He put his life on the line. He put his, his reputation on the line. He actually faced bullets. He looked death in the eyes. Mr. Gandhi never did that. Mr. Gandhi never faced any bullets. Neither did Mr. Nehru or whoever else, the so-called great freedom fighters of India. Mr. Bose did that. He had skin in the game. There is this very important concept in leadership, skin in the game. A leader must have skin in the game, which means when something goes wrong, the leader must be the first to face that. In, in naval warfare, the captain always goes down with the ship. So that is something Mr. Bose believed in. And it's because of Mr. Bose that uh, the British, that the evil, genocidal, bloodthirsty, barbaric British occupiers of India, it's because of Mr. Bose that they finally decided to leave India. They decided it was not safe anymore for them to remain in India. They decided that it's enough. We need to leave India immediately. It's because of Mr. Bose that this happened. And had Mr. Bose won, then the India you live in today would have been a very different country. It would have been a genuinely free country. Today, India is a partially free country. It is still under foreign occupation. There is so much mental colonization, low standards, mediocrity, foreign constitution, foreign laws, foreign institutions, Hindu phobia everywhere. It's because Mr. Bose lost, but he lost while doing what he was doing best for the country. So we need to take his work forward and make India truly a free nation. Mr. Bose was a man of very high standards. Today, India is the nation of Gandhi and Nehru, a, Nehru, a nation of mediocrity and low standards. If you want to truly honor Mr. Bose, raise your standards. Stop wasting your time, stop wasting your life, stop gossiping, stop watching Bollywood, do some real work. Live up to his standards. So that's what I would like to stay, say just to start off with to pay tribute to the great Subhash Chandra Bose on his 125th birth anniversary. And now let's take some questions. I am at your disposal for the next 90 minutes or so. So ask me your best questions. Let's see what questions we have today. Okay, let's take this one. It's by Pinakpani Joshi. uh, In Indica, Megasthenes, the Greek ambassador to the Mauryan Empire, writes about Indian history and uh, 200 to 300 BC Indian situations. Current source of it reliable to know our ancient history. Okay, so what he's asking is that, is that a reliable source of information? See, we have so little information today. About the ancient uh, times in Indian history, all of our own records have been destroyed a thousand years ago in the destruction of our great universities and the burning of our great libraries. So, whatever little information we have, we have to make do with that. So, one of the sources of information for the Mauryan era of our history is the account of Megasthenes, who was a Greek ambassador to uh, to to the Mauryan Empire. Uh, he was. A resident in Patliputra, I believe, which is present day Patna. And he wrote a reasonably detailed account of Indian society and uh, the country at that time. So uh, what he says is, well, because of the paucity of information, we have to treat all of this information as very precious. And we can glean whatever we can from that. So I think it's a reasonably uh, factual account of the, of the country, of the civilization, of the culture, of the time, it is more. It is written more like a, more like a tactical military account, an observation of how things are, you know, that sort of thing. So it's it's reasonably factual, and what's interesting is that he writes about the uh, the division of labor in Indian society. So any society which is a functional society has a division of labor. Without division of labor, you can't have a functional society. So what Megasthenes wrote was that Indian society was made up of seven classes, seven divisions. Nowadays, you would call them castes, right, because of the uh, colonial terminology. So in the days of Megasthenes, he observed that there were seven different classes of people in India, including the scholars, which would today be called the Brahmins. Then you had the administrators, you had the advisors and ministers of the king, you had the warriors, you had farmers, you had other. I don't remember exactly what uh, the entire division was like, but there were seven divisions, seven major divisions in society. So that's an interesting thing that uh, this uh, account of Megasthenes tells us about. And he also explicitly mentions the fact that there was no slavery in India. No Indian was ever a slave. So there's a lot to be. to learn from this account and it you know it it kind of goes it kind of contradicts everything that is written about india in the colonial uh, historiography so i think it's a it's a good and informative source about our ancient history Okay, Atharva says, how can we become a Dharmic country without a monarchy? What elements of monarchy and theocracy can we bring in a government? I'm 16 years old in class 12. I act like your videos very much. Thank you, Atharva. You don't need a monarchy for a Dharmic society. You can have a constitutionally Dharmic country, right? Your constitution and laws can be based on the precepts of Dharma. And you can have a democracy. India has, throughout its history, been a democracy in some way or the other. You had the Mahajanapada era, which was essentially a democracy. You had the Pala kingdom in in Bengal, whose first founder king, I believe, in the seventh or eighth century, was elected democratically. The people were fed up of the lawlessness in the in this in the kingdom, and they elected a person, a man from their own midst, as the king, and he was the founder of this. Uh, I think the Pala dynasty in Bengal. So we always had democracy. The people always were uh, paramount. In Indian society. So we certainly can have that again. We, instead of a king, we can elect uh, presidents, prime ministers or whatever you want to call them. And you can have a constitution and laws that are dharmic in nature instead of a dharmic like they are today. It's very simple. right? So we don't need monarchy at all. We can have a presidential system or a prime ministerial system or whatever you want. As long as the constitution and the laws are dharmic, you have a dharmic society, which would be a great improvement in the way the country is run. Okay. Uh, right, where do we have, uh, mm, what else do we have? Wisdom Bro, my dear friend. Uh, most of the talented Hindustani and carnatic artists are leaving India to teach abroad and the crappy Bollywood music industry is gaining more audience. How can we save our music? You know, Indian culture needs state support. Throughout India's history, Indian culture, whether it is the performing arts, the dramatic arts, whether it is the Indian classical music, whether it is uh, Indian dance, painting, architecture, whatever, it has always needed state support. India's kings, emperors, queens, rulers have always supported Indian culture. And that's why Indian culture thrived so much. It needs patronage. Any form of art or culture needs patronage, either from up high or from the grassroots, in the absence of such patronage, culture dies out, it withers away. And after independence, there has been a studied and concerted effort from the part of the government to starve out Indian culture. So we have these organizations like the Sangit Narak Academy, which don't make any difference in the in the in the real world scenario. And that's all. So they support that. And that's it. Our work is done. So because of that, Indian classical music, which is the richest and greatest musical tradition in the history of humanity, it is withering out today. It is dying out. It is dying out. It is way, way richer and superior and older than any other form of, of music anywhere in the world, Indian classical music, whether it is Hindustani music or Carnatic music, right? So it's just withering away. It's dying out. There is no support for it. There is no uh, support for, for such music, for for this form of art among the public, because there is no exposure to it anymore for the past 50 to 70 years. Right. So the only music people listen to is this garbage, which is called Bollywood music. And that doesn't even represent Indian culture at all. It represents Middle Eastern culture and foreign cultures. It does not represent Indian culture. Neither does Bollywood music, neither does Bollywood dance represent Indian culture. But that's the mainstream today. And I, I see this all the time. Every single Indian man, woman, or child seems to have a Bollywood song going on in their head at 24 by 7. And when you have some celebration, is whether it's a religious celebration or a wedding or whatever, they, they play this Bollywood music, which is an insult to your ancestors and their culture. So that's what, what's happening today. How can we save our music? We need state support. And uh, there needs to be exposure exposure. See, today nobody knows, even the the teenagers and kids of today don't even know what Indian classical music is. They've never heard it. They've never seen Indian classical dance. So we need exposure and it's the government that needs to do this. We have a Ministry of Culture and God knows what else. What are they doing? What are we paying them for? Why are we paying taxes? The Ministry of Culture and Tourism is the least performing, the worst performing ministry in the whole country, in the entire government. They should be ashamed of what they have been doing for the past how many years. So it the the what needs to happen is we need state support for Indian culture, classical music, Hindustani uh, music, Carnatic music, or whatever, right? Because it's dying out, and it's it's so beautiful. So I I wish the government would wake up, maybe sack the minister whoever is in charge and have somebody else who actually wants to perform, and do so, and make a difference in the world. <clears throat> Okay, will Indian people accept one-party rule? Because I think Netaji liked that. Indian people will accept everything. Indian people accepted jizya tax. Indian people accepted the rule of the British. So why, why won't Indians accept one-party rule? Indian people are sheep today. They will accept anything that you dump on their heads. They accept corruption day in and day out. They accept mediocrity. They accept forced conversions. They accept the missionary schools converting their children to whatever culture and religion. Indians accept everything. Indians have no standards. Indians don't care. Indians don't care. Indians are like sheep. So they will accept one party rule if you impose that on them also. As long as my little life is the same, I don't care. So yeah, Indians will accept that. Indians will accept anything. If tomorrow China comes and takes over India, the Indians will accept that also. Because Indians have lost all (laughs) lost their spine, essentially. It's very sad. Survey says: Why do India's neighbors, especially Pakistan and China, hate and trouble India, despite it being the most democratic and tolerant nation, as compared to other nations? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm wondering how do I answer this question? They don't hate India because of democracy and tolerance. They why does China uh, China doesn't hate India? China doesn't hate India. China fears. India's potential. See, China, the Chinese Communist Party wants to take over the world and rule the world. And one of the major impediments to this is India. India is the only nation in Asia that's powerful enough, strong enough to potentially push back against China and even potentially defeat it. That's what the Chinese are trying to destabilize India. It's nothing to do with hatred, it's nothing to do with democracy or tolerance or any such thing. It's all about real politics and geopolitics. And the Pakistanis hate India because, well, they hate themselves. Pakistanis are Indians, but they pretend that like they are something else. See, if you take, if, if you look at the various Muslim countries in the world, let's take Turkey. If you take Islam out of Turkey, there is Turkish culture and language and all that that's, that is still there. So it is purely Turkish. If you take out Islam from Egypt, you still have Egyptian culture, Egyptian civilization and all that. But if you take Islam out of Pakistan, what is left? <laughs> so they pretend to be Arabs, they pretend to be Turks, and they hate who they are, and because they hate who they truly are, that's why they hate India. And they, they also hate Indian culture and Hinduism. So in the case of Pakistan, it's it's a genuine hatred. In the case of China, it's about geopolitics, right? And no matter how tolerant and democratic India will be, these attitudes will persist. It's nothing to do with democracy or tolerance, it's something else. All right. Um, <clears throat> Harshit says, give respect to Bollywood just like you give respect to the great Nehruji. Yes, yes, of course. Harshit, thank you for reminding me. Uh, The great, great, exalted Bollywood film industry and music industry. Right. Why did Mahatma Gandhi deny his wife medicine? Mr. Gandhi had very high high ideals. So, yeah, it is true that uh, when his wife, uh, what's her name? Kasturba. When she was ill in her last days and when she was uh, on the precipice, on the verge of death, a simple uh, antibiotic like penicillin would have saved her life. But I think Mr. Gandhi said no, you don't. Uh, that should not be used, and that's why she died. I, I think that's what I've heard. And uh, well, Mr. Gandhi is he's a Mahatma, right? Mahatmas have different standards. So I suppose that's one of the characteristics of a Mahatma to, to deny your wife uh, life-saving medicine. I suppose. What else? I mean, I have no other answer. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mahatma, Mohandas the Mahatma, is it possible that China can equip Pakistan with hypersonic missiles which will give Pakistan an edge over India, what can India do about it? It is certainly possible that China will can equip Pakistan with various missiles, the Ch- Chinese have equipped Pakistan with nuclear weapons. The Chinese are the worst proliferators of nuclear weapons, right? So uh, they have equipped China, uh, Pakistan. With nuclear weapons, they have transferred North Korean missile technology to Pakistan. In the future, they may transfer uh, a few hypersonic missiles to Pakistan to give an edge over India and all that. So what can India do about it? What India needs to do over the next five to 10 years is break up Pakistan. It is high time that India ends this problem at its western border. We have to find a way, I don't care how. It is for the leadership to do this. You have to find a solution. It doesn't matter how you find it, what solution it is. But you have to find it. That's the job of a leader. No excuses. We have waited for 75 years. It is time for India in the next 5 to 10 years maximum to fragment Pakistan, to break up Pakistan into its component pieces. And give independence to Sindh, to Balochistan, to Pashtunistan, to Punjab. And uh, whatever else we would like to do it is time i have nothing against the pakistani people i i wish them no harm i wish them peace and prosperity and whatever else they want okay but pakistan in its present shape and form is a is a threat to all civilized societies and to the to, to humanity so it is for india to solve the problem and to preclude all this nuclear blackmail and hypersonic missile threats and all india in the next 5 to 10 years has to break up pakistan in one way or the other doesn't matter how find a way that's why we elect leaders, so that they can find a way to solve India's problems. So this needs to happen. So that's what India needs to do about it. And in the meanwhile, what India can do is we can also proliferate and sell our missiles to other countries. So now it's happening. We are selling the BrahMos missile to the Philippines, aren't we? We may sell it to Vietnam as well. Let's let's uh, encircle China with batteries of BrahMos missiles. The, the, the Chinese fear the BrahMos missile. It's, uh, it's one of the deadliest cruise missiles in the world. So let's do that. Let's repay them in the same coin that they are paying us with. So that's what India should do in the meanwhile, in the interim. Is Elon Musk a fake futurist? No, Elon Musk is not a futurist at all. He's an entrepreneur, he's a businessman, and he is uh, someone who is developing futuristic technologies through trial and error. And he, I don't think, he's a fake futurist. Uh, his worldview is the Western worldview, the capitalist worldview, and it's a pessimistic worldview which actually is a bit realistic because if you look at the way the planet is going today, capitalism is ruining the planet, it is destroying the environment, the oceans are choked with plastic, the atmosphere is being destroyed, there is pollution everywhere, there is a threat of nuclear war, nuclear holocaust. Right now we have a couple of situations in Europe, in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan that could become big conflagrations depending on the actions of the various actors, whether it's the Russians, whether it is the NATO uh, alliance, which is essentially the U.S. So there are lots of problems. So what Elon Musk wants to do is he wants to give humanity options. So maybe we can colonize Mars and maybe the richest of us can go and live there if there's something which goes wrong on our planet, that sort of thing. So I don't think he's a fake futurist. He's putting all his money where his mouth is. And one should appreciate what he's doing. Right. He's investing. He's taking enormous risks with all his money. He's not investing in other com- companies and, and uh, keeping his money safe. He's investing all of his money into the riskiest ventures he can think of, which is SpaceX, Tesla, and all that. So I, I respect the guy. He is uh, re- really doing something that that is important, I would say. Yes, it is certainly important. All right. um, <clears throat> Why does the current government not investigate the Subhash Chandra Bose case? I think we will have to ask the current government. Uh, I don't have an answer. Uh, Many many governments have uh, made noises about this, that we should uh, declassify the thing and uh, reveal the truth about what happened to Mr. Bose. And uh, scholars like Mr. Anujdar Chandra Chur Goz have done a lot of uh, scholarly research and essentially cracked the case, more or less. So why does the current government not do it? Well, I don't really know. We need to ask the government about this. So the standard refrain is that it will, if you declassify certain things, then it will uh, cause problems from a geopolitical perspective and it will cause problems uh, in our relations with certain friendly countries and so on. That's a standard refrain and answer that you get all the time. How much of that is true? I'm not sure. This is something that happened long, long time ago. Uh, so... Yeah, I think the best the the person to whom we need to ask is somebody from the government, right? So let's see if we can get somebody from there and ask this, but I personally don't have the answer because I do not speak on behalf of the government. Okay. uh, uh, What else do we have? Uh, Ayan says, saw so a letter going around on Twitter written by Shri Sitaram Goel calling Nitaj's vision as a union of fascism and communism not fit to lead. Well, I haven't seen this and there's all kind of stuff going on on social media. I don't know how true or false it is. Much of it could possibly be fabricated. And since I have not seen this personally, I would not like to comment on this. If I see this personally and I can study it and examine it, then maybe I could form a a certain informed opinion about this. I personally haven't seen this. So I think it is just prudent for me to not comment about something I have not seen and examined personally. But what I do see nowadays, these days, is a lot of uh, Western commentators who are uh, passing judgment these days about Subhash Chandra Bose you have all these so-called South Asia experts who are saying it is a dangerous thing that India is now uh, honoring Subhash Chandra Bose, the man who allied with the Japanese and the Nazis and all that. Because, you know, it is somehow a bad thing that he took the side of, the, that he sought help from the Nazis. And the same, and and it's not just these uh, Western commentators, it is also their local uh, local Indian tail wagging sepoys and coolies who are also echoing these sentiments nowadays on social media. There is this NDTV anchor called Vishnu Som who is going around crying about this and extolling the virtues of the colonial regime, the British occupation force of India India and all that. The thing is this, Mr. Bose was a nationalist. He did everything from the perspective of national interest. He did not care about his reputation. He did not care about his life. He cared about India and the national interest, and he. And it is a logical thing to conclude it like this, that if my enemy, the occupying power, the oppressing power, is the British, then I should ally with the enemies of the British in order to get rid of them. I don't care what they are doing elsewhere. My enemy's enemy is my friend, it's my ally. And that's the logic which makes sense. Historically, which has always made sense historically, he employed the same logic. And that's why he allied himself temporarily with the Japanese and with the uh, Nazi regime in order to achieve the limited time-bound goal of defeating the British. I see nothing wrong with that. And all of these people who are currently moaning about the honor that Subhash Chandra Bose is getting they will never say a single word about the genocide that the British committed in India. At least 100 million deaths through artificial famines, the latest of which was perpetrated by Winston Churchill in the 1940s. At least 4 million million Bengalis were deliberately and systematically starved to death by Winston Churchill, who stole their rice and sent it to the West to aid the so-called war effort against the Nazis. So, when it comes to Winston Churchill, these people are quiet. And they they will not condemn any of his actions, any of his genocide, genocidal, brutal, barbaric, bloodthirsty actions. But on the other hand, they want us to condemn the Nazis and condemn Subhash Chandra Bose because he allied with the Nazis. This is called double standards. Right? So my position is very simple. If you don't care about what Churchill did to my people, I don't care what the Nazis and the Germ- and the Japanese did to your people. Not my problem. Very simple, Bose was a nationalist, he cared only for India, he did everything for India, he put his life on the line for India, he sacrificed everything for India, we must honor that. That is that is called genuine, real politic and that is how a freedom fighter should, uh, that is the real definition of freedom fighter. So that's what I can say. As far as fascism and communism is concerned, these are tools. What is the definition of fascism? Anything you don't like is fascism, right? That's the that's the 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 current uh, uh, that's the the way things are portrayed. Anything if the go- Indian government does anything, especially if it is the Modi government, then it has to be fascism. There is no definition of fascism. Whatever they do is fascism. That's how it is, right? So I don't care about any of this nonsense. According to me, Mr. Bose was India's greatest freedom fighter, far greater than Mr. Mohandas Gandhi or Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru or anybody else. And so, that's what I can say. I don't care about fascism, communism, any of that. If 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 what Mr. Bose uh, embodied was fascism, then we need to support that, because because he supported India. All right. <clears throat> Where else are we? What else do we have? Kim Donald. on In your previous uh, streams, you said external forces install dictators in African nations. Can you explain this and, and name those forces? You know, Karl Marx, in the 19th century, he spoke about the invisible hand. He said there is an invisible hand that controls world affairs global geopolitics and it is a group of people that we cannot see who are acting behind the scenes and they actually are the ones who uh, influence events worldwide and the shape of of geopolitical actions he called it the invisible hand now he is not a he was not a conspiracy theorist he was a realist he is considered to be one of the greatest thinkers of the west and a philosopher and all that right so even today you have such things now forget about africa for a minute let's talk about india yes it is true that uh, external forces in the past 150 years have been interfering in africa uh, they are the ones if you, see let me let's take a look at the uh, map of africa shall we so here we are if you look at the map of africa there are all these straight lines is it natural for geographical boundaries political boundaries to be straight lines everywhere can you see straight lines straight lines everywhere in africa it's because the European colonizers, when they left Africa, they, don't, they did not even bother to draw maps properly and, and make space for tribal divisions. They just randomly drew straight lines and get, got out of the country. But they kept on influencing events after they left. So what happens in Africa is that because of the straight lines, various tribal groups have been... Uh, cohesive tribal or or social units, cultural units for, for centuries, they found they find themselves on different sides of the boundary. And their allegiance lies to their tribe and their culture, not to their artificial nation that has been created by the West. And that's why you have so many civil wars in Africa. And that is great for the West because they can keep inter- interfering in Africa and keep exploiting resources from Africa. That's what they've been doing. And now it's the Chinese who are doing that. Right. but. You will see the same thing even in the Middle East. Straight lines, right? Once again, a legacy of colonialism of of the West. You will see straight lines even here, yeah, which is erstwhile the erstwhile boundary between India and Persia. Now, forget about the for uh, forget about Africa for a minute. Let's talk about India. In India, you have constant foreign interference in the internal affairs of India. Right now. As of today, there are certain forces in the world that are way too powerful even for India. They are way more powerful than the Indian government, than the Iranian government, than, than the German government, than, 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 the, than the, uh, U, uh, the government of the UK. There are certain forces that are so powerful that they can overpower any country anytime. And they keep interfering across the world and telling countries how to conduct their internal and external affairs. It is done via a variety of means. For instance, in India, we have all these NGOs. We have hundreds, thousands of NGOs that get substantial amounts of foreign funding. Now, do you think money is given for free? Do you think money is given without any expectation? No. These are all means of interfering in the internal affairs of India. For instance, the Indian judiciary entertains these PILs, public interest litigations, that come in from various NGOs and all these NGOs are funded from abroad, millions of dollars, billions of dollars. So this is direct interference in India's internal affairs, isn't it? And these NGOs are allowed to run unchecked in India. The government of India for whatever reason is unable to stop their activities because of arm twisting from certain very strong forces from abroad. You have billions, maybe tens of or hundreds of billions of dollars that are are being poured into India every year for the sake of conversions to foreign religions. This is again, external interference in the internal affairs of India. These are movements to re-engineer the demographics of India. This is called uh, demographic engineering. That's what's happening right now in India as we speak. So it's not just Africa. It's happening right here in India. And these forces are way, way too strong. The Indian government is no match for these forces. Neither is any other government in the world, actually. It's only certain countries like China and Russia that are trying to push back against these forces. Right? So India needs to become stronger. Until that time, there's going to be constant interference in India's internal affairs. India's foreign policy is also not an independent foreign policy actually, right? But it's not entirely independent, but yet India is making the right moves in foreign policy by allying with nations like France, for instance. Now, if you look at France, you will understand where the f- foreign interference is coming from if you have some understanding of geopolitics. So, th- so that's what's happening. So when it comes to Africa, they, the, these external forces have been installing puppet dictators for decades. And whenever a dictator becomes too big for his own boots, he is taken care of. And there have been certain nationalist movements, certain nationalist politicians who came up in Africa, Patrice Lubumba, for instance, they were assassinated, knocked off. Right, and and then a convenient dictator is put in place. So that's what the Americans have been doing for, that's what the Western countries have been doing. Even France has been doing that in various other European countries in Africa. And nowadays, even the Chinese are doing it. The Chinese are doing it elsewhere. Right? So that's what's happening. The recently, the German <laughs> uh, uh, the German chief of Navy, he came to India a couple of days ago. It became a very big furore. And he spoke his mind openly. He said the Chinese have been doing this. They are installing puppet governments everywhere. They are propping up dictators. It doesn't matter what they do as long as they allow Chinese, uh, the Chinese government access to their country's resources. So that's something the Chinese are doing now, but it's what the West has been doing for at least a century in Africa. So, that's what's happening and those are the the forces at work. How we can do corruption in politics? Just join politics and you'll be corrupt. Politics is all about corruption, especially at the lower levels. Right now, the only clean politics in India is at the central government level, completely clean. I can, I, I am certain of that. But everywhere else, okay, I will not say everywhere else, but in many places, in the lower levels of government, you have corruption. So if you want to do corruption in politics, just join politics at any level and you will be able to indulge in corruption. I know you are asking the opposite. (laughs) But the answer also will help you explain what the opposite is. How can we end corruption in politics? It has to happen top down. Now that we have a clean... Uh, government at the central level, they need to find ways of of starting to clean up politics from the top-down level. So one level below, one level below, one level below below like that. It's going to be a long process. It's not going to be an easy process, but it has to happen if India has to become a great culture, great civilization again. Right now, we are merely a Westphalian nation-state, a truncated, broken country. We have to become a civilization-state again. So for that, we will have to fight corruption and destroy it from its roots. Right. All right. much. Um, Sethi says, is it true that mankind started from Africa but the expansion started from India only? We hear old Indian kings had huge empires extending even ahead of Middle East. Is it true? So, when we talk about Indian kings who had large empires, it's in the past 2,000 years, 3,000 years, maybe 5,000 years. But the history of humanity starts a million years back, right? So there's a difference in the chronological uh, time frame that you're looking at, right? That's what I'm saying. So Indian history, when we're talking about expansion out of India, migrations out of India, that happened uh, in the... Rig Vedic era, maybe before that, and maybe uh, definitely after that, we had kingdoms like uh, regions of Uttar Kuru, Uttar Madra, which is north of India and west of northwest of India, and so on. So, Central Asia essentially, and uh, this entire region was Indian uh, dominated. If you had Indian origin people living there, but that is all in the last maximum 10,000 years or so, which is what we have. Uh, which is what our ancient texts record, all these different migrations out of India. The migration that happened at the end of the Battle of the Ten Kings when those other kings were defeated and they were forced into exile, they had to go out and so on and so forth. So, yes, we had big empires, kingdoms, etc. in Central Asia, uh, north of the Middle East and so on and so forth. Yes, but there is something that is at most in the last 10,000 years, most likely in the past five, six, seven thousand years. We had the Yamnaya expansion out of India which is now almost certainly out of India because R1B is most likely 99.9% an Indian origin haplogroup. Right. So again, the Yamnaya expansion out of India, which conquered all of Europe, it also happened about 6000 years before today. But the out of Africa migration is known from genetic data to have happened about 80,000, between 80 and 70,000 years before today. right? And the oldest evidence of homo sapiens, anatomically modern humans, dates back about 250,000 years before today. It is found in some parts of Africa, the oldest evidence of our species, right? So from the best evidence that we have, genetic evidence and archaeological evidence, from the best evidence we have, we can say that humanity our species, homo sapiens, started from Africa. Now, lots of people don't agree with me. Fine. But you need to base your beliefs, not on sentiments and feelings, but on data. If tomorrow we find older data, older evidence of homo sapiens from India, I will change my mind. Then I will say, okay, we have new evidence now and maybe it, it started from India. Fine, but show me the data. As long as we don't have data from India, which shows that humanity started in India, we have to agree with whatever existing data we have, which all points towards Africa. Now, some people say that according to our Yuga system, the Ramayana happened 9 crore years ago and all that. So to those people, what can I even say? Right, so, so let's not go into that. But it is from all the evidence that we have archaeological and genetic evidence. The story of humanity starts in Africa. If new evidence emerges that changes the story, we will also have to change our understanding of history. But from the data we have, it starts in Africa. Right. What is the current position of development of the Northeast region in terms of infrastructure projects? Uh, For the past 70 years, the Northeast region of India has been neglected, right? Ever since independence, the Northeast was marginalised, totally neglected. No development happened there. No industries, no infrastructure, no jobs, nothing. Stepmotherly treatment. Uh, the Congress regime once even bombarded. I think was uh, was it, was it M- Mizoram? I think it was Mizoram using the Indian Air Force. So the the attitude towards the Northeast has been that of a stepmother for the past almost 70 years. In the past 10 years or so, I can see a lot of change happening there. Now we are de- uh, developing more infrastructure there. For instance, the state of Manipur. Let's take the state of Manipur. Do you know where it is? Let me show you where it is. This is Manipur in the so-called northeast of India. It's the far east of India. So for the past 70 years, there has been only one highway that connects Manipur from to, to the rest of India. And that highway comes through <laughs> through uh, through the state of Nagaland. And you may not have heard of it, but there have been repeated blockades of Manipur through Nagaland and through Naga dominated areas of Manipur, repeatedly, months at a time, years at a time, where nothing is allowed to come into Manipur. And so the, the price of a gas cylinder would go into th- several thousands of rupees and medicines would become unavailable and th- that sort of thing. So that is the kind of treatment that was done to the Northeast. And they, they have their own internal problems, which are historical problems. Uh, so that's why we had this only one highway that goes to Manipur from India. Can you believe it? So now today we have a different another highway that comes through Assam. And now there's also a railway line that is being built. And uh, Manipur is going to become most likely the, the gateway to Northeast India through the city of Moreh, through the little town of Moreh, which is at the border of India and uh, Myanmar. So there's going to be a railway that will connect India through More to Myanmar, to Thailand, to Malaysia, and it will go all the way to Singapore. And hopefully we will also have road connectivity, other connectivity to Laos and other parts of Southeast Asia. It is high time we do that. So for the past, ever since so, our so-called independence, we have developed nothing, no infrastructure that connects India to other countries. India is like a landlocked country, no development of any kind in the border regions, no connectivity to other countries, either through railway lines or through road lines. And nowhere is it more apparent than in the northeast so nowadays in the past decade or so ever since the current government came into into power there has been an emphasis on developing the northeast whether it is in um, the the states of manipur nagaland etc tripura or whether in arunachal pradesh and all it is now being undertaken on a priority basis which is a very good thing we need to spend another 20 30 50 years doing this and make the northeast as developed as the rest of India, if not even more. And and the Northeast can become India's gateway to Southeast Asia. Why not? So that's kind of what's happening. Nowadays, the signs are good. This government is doing the right things, and it needs to continue. Okay. Okay. shenzhen versus bangalore both are their countries silicon valley but why bangalore is so unplanned while shenzhen the youngest city is much more planned it's because see (laughs) let's how do i explain this see it's like this this the central government wants to develop india there's no doubt about it they are doing everything they can to create infrastructure you have dozens of kilometers of highways that are being built every single day, connecting various parts of India, new airports are being built, or new railway lines are being built, they are doing everything they can from their side, the central government to develop India to construct infrastructure at as fast as possible, right. But there are certain things that come under the state government, and state governments have a mind of their own. India says that we have this federal system, which is our great strength. It is not our great strength; it is our greatest weakness. And what you find is that at the municipal level, the 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 the, the district level, state level, you have politicians who don't, who often, not always, but often don't care anything about the country. They are only concerned about their own personal whatever. And often they they are they they don't like what the state go they, what the central government is doing so they want to show the central government in a bad light so they will ensure that there is no development in locally so no infrastructure no town planning they will uh, keep the city in a in a state of disrepair and so on uh, i'm just saying in general i don't know about bangalore who is in power there and all i'm not quite sure but that's the kind of thing there is so it's not just about bangalore bengaluru There are many such cities where the local government deliberately keeps the thing in a terrible condition, right? So if the central government had direct control over cities like Bengaluru or whatever else, things would change very fast. But since it is not the case, that's why the people in those cities are stuck with whatever government they have, with whatever government they have elected, and then they are reaping the benefits of that. So there is too much federalism in India. In China, you have one party that rules everybody. It is dangerous, but it also has the benefits that you can see. The whole country is being developed equally. I mean, not the whole country. Tibet is not the case, but yeah. All the Han regions of China are being developed in this manner. Is there any scientific explanation of ghosts? Well, I don't have any scientific explanation of ghosts. Yeah, I'm not the right person to ask this. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Praktite. Uh, What are your views on artificial womb technology? Well, I haven't heard of this. This is the first time actually I'm actually coming across this. But uh, I suppose it's bound to happen. Everything will eventually be artificial. Artificial hearts, artificial livers, artificial kidneys, artificial wombs also, I suppose. Uh, So I haven't come across this until now, but it is certainly something that science will develop sooner or later. So, yeah, you can have artificial corneas, artificial joints, for instance, artificial hips and knees and all that. You may even have, uh, nowadays you have artificial meat, right? Vegan meat that is exactly the same as as, uh, chicken or whatever else. So everything will eventually be, be available. And, and uh, manufactured through artificial means. So, I suppose you may even have artificial wombs in the future. Right? That's what I can say. Uh, why does every government task in India take so much time? Please pick, sir. It's because of the bureaucracy. See, the bureaucracy, the entire system in India, which is a legacy of the British Raj, is designed to help, though, to, 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 See, the the intent and purpose of this system, which the British created was not to empower and help the citizens and the country. It was to empower the political overlords, which is the British. Now, after the British left, the political overlords became the Congress party and whoever was in power. And the system was never changed. The system was the system of oppression, the system of foreign occupation. So today also the same system persists. It's as if we are still occupied by a foreign occupying power. But the foreign occupying power is our corrupt politicians nowadays. Not all of them are corrupt, but many of them are corrupt. And the bureaucracy and the administration, they are exactly... The same, they are run in exactly the same manner, and they have the same attitudes as their predecessors had during the British Raj. They did not see themselves as public servants, they saw themselves as public overlords. And very often, they don't like the policies the government is implementing, so they try their best to slow it down. And they are lazy, they are underpaid, and they are mediocre people. They have no motivation, they have a job for life, and it doesn't matter what they do, how badly they mess up. They're going to have the job for life. So in, in this kind of environment of low standards and mediocrity, everything will take time. Everything is going to be slow. There is no urgency. There is no consequence for messing things up. If a government servant, a bureaucrat were to be fired for, for wasting time, if that uh, system were in place, then everything would suddenly speed up. But according to the... I think in some articles of the Indian Constitution, these guys can't be fired. Government employees have a job for life essentially. The most you can do is suspend them but they will still get a salary and they will still be able to come back to the job eventually. So this is the system that is entrenched in India and it is so hard to remove it. Because if the government makes any move to change the system, the entire bureaucracy will go on strike and then there will be no governance in India. So everything... (laughs) India is a nation of 1.3 billion people who are hostages to the governance system, to the bureaucrats. A nation of hostages, nothing else. So that's why it takes so so long. uh, Everything takes so long. Every good thing is delayed. Every good decision of the government is demonized and very often they have to take it back, as as you see. And the people are so brainwashed The they think everything the government does is bad. Farm laws were bad. Bad for the farmers. You idiots! They were not bad for the farmers. They empowered the farmers. But no. We will, we will watch NDTV and various uh, podcasters and we will believe what they say. Because we don't have a mind of our own. We will just absorb other people's opinions and use them as our own opinions. You can read the farm laws, the actual text, and make your own judgment, but you will not do that. You will listen to NDTV and make your own decisions based on that. So, you know, I'm not saying all of you are like this, but I have come across people like that. Many people like that. Unfortunate. So this is the level that we have in India. And that's the level you see in the government as well. Especially among the bureaucrats and the so-called public servants. All right, Mayank says, in your talk with Dr. Ishtiak Ahmed, the noted anchor and panelists were (laughs) <laughs> quite quite Gandhi centric in their approach. Can you share your experience about that? And would you be collaborating with with Dr. Ahmed again? See, I don't know, Mr. Uh, Doctor Ahmed personally is a Pakistani uh, origin uh, academic who lives and works in Sweden or something. He's written a book or so about Jinnah. I don't really know much about him. Uh, so I was on this uh, discussion of sorts on on uh, a small YouTube channel called. What was it called? The Argumentative Indians. Right. And uh, the the panelists were the Dr. Ishtiak Ahmad, a lady from the JNU. There was this, this former advisor to the Prime Minister of India called uh, Mr. Sudhinder Kulkarni. And uh, there was this anchor, I don't remember his name, and they, uh, the what was the discussion about? It was about uh, something to do with partition or something. I don't remember the exact topic. But what I observed was there were at least a couple of Pakistanis on the (laughs) at least a couple of Pakistanis on the panel and they were all so much in love with Mr. Gandhi. Gandhi ji this and Mahatma ji this and Mahatma ji that. And I you know what my opinion is about Mr. Gandhi. I said that his contribution, I think I said, I don't remember exactly what I said, but they were all aghast. Mr. Sudhinder Kulkarni said that he was aghast that I express this sort of opinion about Mr. Gandhi. And what is striking, what is so so remarkable, is that even the Pakistanis have so much respect and love for Mr. Gandhi. Isn't that curious? It is one thing to, see, to, to expect that Indians, many Indians would uh, have a great deal of respect and admiration for Mr. Gandhi, but you will see even more admiration for Mr. Gandhi among the Pakistanis. Why is that so? Have you ever asked yourself this? Why do the Pakistanis love Mr. Gandhi more than Indians? Isn't that strange? So uh, that was my experience. Uh, I was, I was on one side. Everybody was against me in that in that uh, panel. They were all peaceniks. They all wanted um, peace between India and Pakistan, but apparently on the terms of Pakistan, not on the terms of India. And they were all big fans of Mr. Gandhi. And they all believed that Mr. Gandhi gave India its independence and Mr. Bose had nothing to do with it. Mr. Ishtiak Ahmed, I think he said that Bose to kuch nahi tha, chota sa admi tha. He did not do anything, that sort of thing, you know. So that was my experience. Would I be collaborating with Mr. Mehmet, with Mr. Ahmed again? No, merci. Okay. What else do we have? Is it true that the Cheras, Cholas, and Pandyas were the lo- longest surviving kingdoms on earth? The Cholas are one of the one of the longest ruling dynasties in human history. So, their, 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 they are first attested sometime in the second or third century BC. Okay, and at that time they were small rulers, but their existence as rulers in southern India. In a small part of southern India, southern India is attested from that time, and they continued on as small local kings for over a thousand years, until the cusp of the 10th and 11th centuries AD, when they suddenly became an enormous empire under Raj Rajaraja Chola and his son, the great Rajendra Chola, he who conquered essentially the whole of Southeast Asia. So, their reign, their rule as a dynasty lasted approximately 1,500 years, roughly, roughly, give or take a little bit. So, I would say that the Cholas are possibly the longest ruling dynasty in the history of humanity. I am not sure if there is any, any other dynasty Maybe I don't remember, but uh, certainly the Cholas. I'm not sure about the Cheras and Pandyas if they ruled that long, probably not. But the Cholas are like incredible. All right, let's have some interesting questions, ladies and gentlemen. Was CM Jyoti Boshu a bad guy? Well, one guy's terrorist another guy is another guy's freedom fighter. So it all depends on your perspective. Whether he was a bad guy or a great guy, it all depends on your political inclinations and your perspective. That's what I can say. But if you want to if you want to have an objective measure of the effect of his rule. Look at the economic performance of Bengal during the time he was Chief Minister. How much development did Bengal see? How much did Bengal's economy grow? How many new industries came up? What was the overall living standards in Bengal? If If you ask yourself these questions, well, that will give you a very good indication. Numeric, tangible, measurable measure of his performance as a Chief Minister. And then look at the kind of uh, policies he implemented. And what was the kind of attitude he had towards the opposition parties? What sort of policies did he implement? I think it's all out there in the public domain. And what sort of uh, attitude he had towards towards Indian foreign policy, especially relations with China and all that. It's very clear what it was. He was communist and he was very much pro-China. So based on all of that, I will leave it to all of you to determine, decide for yourselves using your own innate intelligence, whether he was a good guy, bad guy, good leader, bad leader, good CM, bad CM, what sort of performance he had. What's your view on Netaji's spiritual accomplishments? He saw all this before we did. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about his spiritual accomplishments. I know him as a freedom fighter, as a great son of India, as a warrior, as a great leader. I don't know about his spiritual accomplishments. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Uh... Okay. What else do we have? Uh, I'm sure there are lots of interesting questions. What is the origin of fair skin people in India? The origin of fair skin people in India is Indian pop. Is the Indian population the gene for fair skin? originated either in India or the Middle East. Now, if you look at the Middle East geographically, it is part of the extended Indian subcontinent, and it has been part of the overall Indian population continuum in history in the past 10,000 years. Right. So the origin of fair skin, it's itself in India. The Europeans got this gene for fair, fair skin from Indians. Now, you know... I think by now we all know that the modern European population is the descendants, uh, are the modern Europeans, most of them are descended from an older European population, the hunter gatherers etc, farmers, their females and the invading Yamnaya males. These invaders are called Yamnaya, it's a Russian term which means pit. But these invading males, who were all horse-riding brutal warriors, they all came from the East and their genetic haplogroup lineage is R1B, which is 99.9% now known to be of Indian origin. Right. So the fair skin, not only in India but also in Europe, originates from a genetic mutation that first occurred in india about 785 between 5 and 10000 years before today so that's the origin of fair skin not only in india but also in europe and maybe i can maybe i can even show you if if, if i can fair skin mutation let me uh, try and google it uh, let's take a look at uh, okay this this gene genetic mutation which uh, okay it's a long paper i will not be able to identify the exact clauses in there but uh, there you have it. Indians and Europeans share light skin genetic mutation. And that mutation yes, SLC, whatever it is. It actually originated in India or the Middle East, and the Middle East is an extension of the Indian genetic population in ancient times. So there you have it, you can do your own research and look it up a little look it up in more detail. Okay, next, what other questions do we have? What other questions do we have? Were ancient Indians mostly vegetarians? Well, it depends on which time period you're looking at. Uh, If you look at the archaeological evidence in ancient India, you find evidence of fish hooks, of harpoons, of spears with those... uh, indentations on them which indicate they are not for warfare but for hunting. You also find evidence of bones with cut marks on them and all that so clearly there were there were time periods in Indian history when Indians were, at least some Indians ate meat for sure but at some point in time because of our culture civilization and because we became so developed that there was no need to eat meat at some point in time, maybe during the Vedic age or thereabouts, this idea did come into our culture that non-violence is the highest ideal as far as possible, it should not hurt any other living being and therefore vegetarianism is the superior way of living. But I would say at any given point in time, even during the Vedic age, there would have been people who ate meat and you find evidence of that. But I would say that after the Vedic age, maybe the majority of Indians may have been vegetarians, possibly, but not all. It's never been all. India has always been a very, very diverse culture, very diverse civilization. So even among the people who were members of Vedic culture and civilization, there would have been people who ate meat. I know this is not going to be make me very popular, but facts are facts you find evidence in the archaeological record of meat eating at various in, in various periods of indian history so meat eating was there but vegetarianism was also certainly there <clears throat> if we are able to free tibet can we make it part of india Let's free free Tibet first and then we'll decide. So we freed Bangladesh from Pakistan and see what we did with it. We made it a separate country. And now it's, well, you know what the situation is. So the the biggest question is, uh, will we be able to free Tibet from the Chinese? It is very much in India's national interest to have a free Tibet, a non-Chinese Tibet on our northern border. Right? So it is very much something that we should accomplish in the long term, it would be good for our national security and our national interest. So the first thing is to free Tibet and then we can decide whether to make it a free country, or make it a part of India that that is something that will be thought about later. The real question is, can we free Tibet? If yes, how can we do it? And in what time frame can we do it? So that is the real deal. That's the real question. Uh, Tibet claimed Ladakh. No. Nope. It is the Taiwanese who claimed Ladakh, not Tibet. Uh, okay, what else do we have? What, if, what else do we have? Shikhar Saraf says, in India we see many cases like Sushruta saying his knowledge has been delivered from his lord um, Danvatri and Ramanujan saying his math came from a goddess. How do we explain this? Well, everybody has their own personal views about how they they got their knowledge. And we have to respect people's views. Right? So, I, I personally don't have an explanation of why some people believe that their knowledge, scientific knowledge comes from a goddess or a god or whatever. Everybody has a personal belief system. There are so many scientists who are very religious, there are so many Christian scientists who believe in Jesus Christ. There are Jesus physicists. Uh, there are there are Jewish physicists who practice Judaism here, who believe in the Judaic uh, God and all that, Abrahamic God. Uh, so, so it is not uncommon for scientists and mathematicians to have religious inclinations and religious beliefs. And when you have religious beliefs, you may attribute your discovery of whatever knowledge you have discovered to divine influence. So that is a personal thing. There is no need to explain it in some way, right? It's a personal thing. So that's what I can say about it. Some people are atheistic and it has come from me only, from my own intellect. Some people will say it's come from a god or goddess or the gods or the Brahman or whatever. It's a matter of personal belief. Um, Okay, here's a question. Why does India not have dual citizenship? Is it disadvantageous in any way? Will it cause security threats as some claim? Yeah, it can cause security problems. Let's say you have, I mean, you can certainly exclude certain countries from the dual citizenship clause, For instance, uh, you may say that uh, people of Chinese origin or Pakistani origin or whatever are not allowed to become dual citizens. But then there's always other problems. For instance, you have the case of this guy, David Coleman Headley, who was one of the principal uh, terrorist investigators who did all the reconnaissance before the uh, 2611 terrorist attack in Mumbai, right? So his name was David Coleman Headley. He was an American citizen, but his father was Pakistani. Right, so he was half Pakistani, and his actual name was some Gilani or something. But he changed his name legally in the U.S. to David Coleman Headley, Headley to make it make it look like he was not of he had nothing to do with Pakistan. And imagine if somebody like that gets dual citizenship in, with India, they'll be able to to wreak all kinds of havoc in India. So. We already have so much foreign influence in India. We have so much of all this going on. So why take extra unnecessary risks? So maybe in the future, when when India becomes a really powerful country, then we can open up dual citizenship for certain nationalities. But as of today, I think it is very dangerous. Even if you uh, allow only certain countries to have dual citizenship, even then you may have people like David Coleman Headley, uh, filtering in and you know hurting India's national interest. So I think that's the reason why uh, at least India doesn't have this uh, clause of dual citizenship. Will China be able to cut the chicken's neck with the help of Nepal, Pakistan, and Bangladesh in the future? It is a possibility, but then India can also take certain actions. See, if you look at, see, this is a question I've answered lots of times, first of all, but I'll take it again. So if this is the chicken neck you're talking about, the Siliguri Corridor, right? So if the Chinese manage to cut it off, it means that we will lose access to the Northeast. So what we can do is very simple, go through Bangladesh. In times of war, we don't need to respect the sovereignty of other nations when our own national security is at stake. So if the Chinese succeed by whatever means to cut off in cutting off the chicken's neck, the Siliguri Corridor, we can just go straight through Bangladesh and reestablish our communications, our lines of uh, supplies, everything with the Northeast. Very simple. And if the Nepalese, I don't think the Nepalese would get involved in this, but if there is any Nepalese involvement in this, then they will have to pay a price in in the long run for this, for what what they do. So it is possible, perhaps there is a small probability that they, the Chinese may be able to do that, but we have lots of options in that case. We can simply cut through Bangladesh and reestablish our connection or connectivity and supply routes and all that, logistical routes with the Northeast of India. So it's not a big problem once you think in a different way. Okay, what else do we have? Sad Sadhguru believes in the Aryan invasion theory. Please do a collab with him and show him new evidences. OK, thank you for the suggestion. <laughs> um, what else do we have? What happened at Tiananmen Square in 1989 in China? There was a massacre. There was this pro-independence movement, pro-democracy, not independence, pro-democracy movement. Uh, tens of thousands of students who were de- who were protesting, demonstrating in Tianan- Tiananmen Square in Beijing. You want to look at it? Let's take a look at it. Let's see what Tiananmen Square looks like. This is the city of Beijing. And if you go into Beijing, I'm not sure quite where it is, but I'm sure we can search for it Tiananmen Square. So here it is, this is Tiananmen Square. It's where that horrific massacre took place. I think it's somewhere here, Tiananmen Square. This is what they call it. So it's here that, that this uh, this demonstration took place. All these students, tens of thousands of students, they demonstrated there for days in f- in favor of democracy, and eventually the Chinese Communist Party ordered a military crackdown on them with tanks and machine guns and all kinds of weaponry. And there are a number of versions of what happened. The Chinese say that maybe 70, 80, 100, 200 people died. The Western media claims that 10,000, 20,000 people died. The students, we don't know exactly where the truth lies. Maybe it's somewhere in between. And the Chinese allege that its it was a Western attempt at regime change, which is something that is actually quite plausible the west has been has a long history of trying to influence uh events in various countries and interfere in various countries internal affairs so that's what happened in tiananmen square in the chinese communist party after two or three days they cracked down and they said enough is enough we will not tolerate this and there was a bloody massacre lots of people died and that's 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 what happened in 1989 in tiananmen square Uh, didn't I answer this? Okay, let's take it again. What if China gives Pakistan hypersonic missile technology in order to counter India's purchase of S-400 missile system? Why is the West lagging behind developing hypersonic missiles? The West is indeed kind of lagging behind. Uh, the best hypersonic missiles are the Russian missiles, the Russian Circon missiles, which, uh, which have a maximum speed of max 7 or 8 or something, which is ridiculously fast so i don't think any western system has a def- has a defense against a missile of that speed which essentially means that various uh, the british elizabeth class aircraft carriers etc are already obsolete <laughs> so uh, so yes the west is kind of lagging behind in missile technology the americans are now trying to catch up they have a number of hypersonic missile programs Uh, The Chinese have this DF Dongfeng, uh, some number, hypersonic missile which they have developed. Uh, It's called a carrier killer missile. It's a ballistic missile which uh, could take out an entire aircraft carrier battle group or something. We're not sure how accurate it is, but they seem to have some such technology. They also have a hyper maneuvering uh, vehicle that they tested recently. So, yes, they do have some such technology. And what if they give it to Pakistan? Well, then India will have to do something about it. Right. So, the response, so what should India do about this? Develop its own technology. India right now is doing remarkably well in developing and testing better and better missile systems. Right. And this is a consequence of all the support that DRDO, etc. has got from the government in the last seven to eight years. Right now, you see lots of missile tests happening. If you want to improve a missile system or rocket system, you need to do lots and lots of tests. And you see lots of tests happening in the last couple of years. So I am sure there are certain missile systems that are being developed in India that are very secret and that have not been revealed to the public. So I am quite certain we are developing our own hypersonic missiles. And even if we have developed them by now, we will not announce it to the world. Unless there is a need to do that. So, the response to such a development is very simple. India has to develop its own technology, and I'm sure we are doing that. All right. Yes, it is. uh, Where is that comment? The comments, they move so fast. DF 17. Yes, sir. You're right. Thank you. That's the Chinese hypersonic missile, the uh, carrier killer missile. The DF-17, the Dong Feng-17, alright, yeah this is a question I get uh, almost every time. What are my thoughts on Yuval Noah, Noah Harari's work like Sapiens and Homo Deus? He said in his book the agric- that the agricultural revolution was a curse for human civilization. So my answer even today has not changed. I still haven't read the books, the two books. I have those books uh, in another place. I have both the books. I have so many books that I still haven't read. My my reading list is more than a hundred books long. That is my reading backlog. It's going to take me years to finish that. So yeah, one of those books hopefully I will read is one of these Harari books. But uh, since I haven't read these two books, I really can't comment about it. When I do read them, I will answer this question. Okay, Uh, what else do we have, okay let's see this, so Aviral Tunchal says, did there ever exist an entity in India like the Hashishins of Arabia or the Ninjas of Japan? The Hashishins were not exactly Arabic, I think they were Shias, Shias in Persia and the Middle East, the fortress of Alamut during the time of Salahuddin Ayubi and those centuries and they were eventually wiped out, eradicated by the great Sri Chinggis Khan and his descendants. So, uh, that's about the Hashishins, Uh, they were alleged to uh, carry out assassinations, political assassinations, paid assassinations, under the influence of drugs, Hashish. That's why they are believed to have been called the Hashishins. Now, in Japan, they had these professional assassins called the Ninjas. They had their entire martial art called Ninjutsu. They operated in the shadows under the cloak of anonymity, and they carried out political assassinations on behalf of various, whoever paid them, essentially. So did there ever exist such an entity in India? There must have existed entities like that in India in ancient times. If you read the Arthashastra, which, whose author is Vishnugupta Gupta Chanakya from the Mauryan Empire era, Well, there is certainly, uh, there are mentions of uh, the use of political assassinations, of, of assassins, of spies, and all of these things in the service of the nation and the empire and the civilization. So the emperor needs to ensure that the entire country is safe and there are no enemies of the nation proliferating and all that. That's why you need to take certain actions. You need to do certain things. You need to spy on the general... Uh, population I suppose and in case there are certain enemies of the nation you have to take them out quietly. So yes there were assassins in those days employed by the states so I'm not sure what they were called and all that but certainly any powerful emperor, empress, king queen would have employed the services of professional assassins. You need that to safeguard the country, and the citizens and the civilization, you need that. But uh, so yeah, it, it certainly did exist. And you can see uh, references to that in the Arthashastra. Okay, what else do we have? Um What else do we have? Illuminati. Are the Illuminati real? Please answer. Well, I haven't come across any of them in real life, so I can't say for sure. So there is this persistent story, persistent claim. There's a secret society that kind of controls the world. It's called the Illuminati. Well, Where's the evidence? It doesn't mean, see, because we don't have evidence, it doesn't mean that this secret society or any other secret society doesn't exist. Secret societies have always existed. But are they real? We don't know. I I personally don't have answers, right? Uh, To whom should we give the title of father of of the nation if we could? Well, first of all, why do we need a father of the nation? Certainly not Mr. Mohandas Gandhi um see today there is this uh, there is this attempt which is made this idea of india attempt which is made to make indians believe that india was born in 1947 and the so called founding fathers of india are the people who framed the constitution and all that those are not the founding fathers of india india was not born in 1947 the truncated mediocre nation state of india was indeed born in 1947, but the civilization state of India has existed for 10,000 plus years. So if you were to give the title of father of nation to somebody, it would be somebody like Lord Ram or Lord Krishna or the great emperor Bharat, after whom the civilization is named Bharat. So somebody like that, certainly not a mediocre little person like like Mr. Gandhi, certainly not Mr. Gandhi. Okay, let's take some more questions. Is there a question? Oh, you want Mr. Vivekanand to be the father of the nation? I don't think he's that great. To be the father of the nation. India is a 10,000 plus year old civilization. You need somebody bigger than Mr. Vivekanand to be the father of the nation. I am not saying he is insignificant or any such thing. I am not passing any judgment on Mr. Vivekanand. I am saying there have been far, far greater people than Mr. Vivekanand in India. Right? So I would not agree with anyone who says that Mr. V- that Swami Vivekananda should be the father of the nation. Certainly not. Come on. Okay, this is an interesting question. I'm not sure if I have taken this before, so let's take it. Animesh says, If we already had trade routes established as far as Rome for thousands of years, Why did Vasco da Gama and Christopher Columbus venture out on a sea voyage hoping to find India? Well, there is a gap in your knowledge of history which let me fill. Let me fill it. This is the good question. So what happened? Like you said, it is well known that we had trade routes, trade connections with Rome. About 2000 years ago, we find ample evidence of that, archaeological evidence in India and in Rome in in Italy as well. This is established beyond any doubt that there there were extensive trade connections between india and rome so that trade happened via sea via the sea routes and 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 possibly via land routes also and rome as you can see is here in italy and india as you can see is all the way here thousands of kilometers away so what happened what happened is that so let me st- let me explain what happened in the 13th century a new phenomenon emerged in asia that phenomenon was called Chinggis Khan, the great Sri Chinggis Khan, the great Mongol conqueror who conquered half the world, the greatest conqueror in known history. And he suddenly expanded out of Mongolia. And, and And what happened as a consequence of that is that the Turks, the Turkic tribes, they all ran from him. They were scared for their life. They ran, ran, ran westwards, trying to escape the Mongol Empire and its expansion. So they used to uh, live somewhere around the Gobi Desert, right? And then they ran from there, they ran westwards and they kept running, running, running. They came to Central Asia, they kept running westwards and and from Central Asia, from the Caucasus region, they came southwards and they entered Anatolia. And eventually after they established their small kingdoms there, And that eventually became the Ottoman Empire which destroyed the Byzantine Empire which was here in Turkey whose capital was Constantinople. And the Turks uh, conquered Constantinople. Which year was that? Look it up. I think 1500 and something. 14 something. Which year did they conquer Constantinople? I don't remember the date exactly. But it was uh, Mehmet Fateh the Ottoman Sultan who conquered Constantinople and the effect that had is that all the trade routes with India were cut off. So the trade routes were overland routes between Europe and India. The Europeans needed Indian spices and Indian products and in, in exchange for that they used to export gold to India. Now the Turks conquered Constantinople, they conquered the Byzantine Empire and They were hostile to the Europeans. They were hostile to the Christians. They were all Muslims, the Turks, right? So that had the effect of cutting off the trade routes with India. And then the Europeans stopped getting the spices and whatever else they needed from India. And that is why they started looking for other routes for reaching India. And that's how Vasco da Gama and Christopher Columbus went in very different directions looking for India. Columbus, the great idiot, thought that he will reach India by going westwards. And he reached the Americas and he thought that was India. That's why he called the natives Indians. Vasco da Gama went south and he went around the Cape of Good Hope and that's where in Eastern Africa he came across various Indian people and they brought him to India. So that's what happened. So that is the reason why even though there were these historic trade routes between India and Europe, especially Rome, Greece, all that, but because the Turks cut off the trade routes a few Mm -hmm. centuries before today, that's why the Europeans were forced to look for alternate uh, ways to reach India, essentially a sea, a sea route towards India. So that's why Christopher Columbus, Vasco da Gama etc, they all went looking for India and Vasco da Gama succeeded, Columbus discovered America by mistake. So interesting question. Um, Okay, let's see some other things. Does China respect Indian culture and Indian people or do they hate us like the Westerners? The Chinese look upon India as a colonized, broken, inferior, mediocre country. And they are correct in their assessment. The Chinese don't respect India today. They have deep contempt for India today and they show india as an example of what happens when you become too democratic and you when you try to copy the west and they are absolutely right about this look at the development in china and look at the development in, in india it's very simple there's a stark difference the divergence between the trajectories of india and china since the 1990s is incredibly stark they got their act together and they have taken off in a in a very uh, on this direction of extreme economic growth, right? And look at India, still mediocre, still corrupt, still bogged down in bureaucracy and federalism and all that. So the Chinese today, the Chinese Communist Party displays India as an example of mediocrity and an example of what happens when you have democracy in Western values in a country, in an Asian country. They don't hate India and historically the chinese considered india to be, the, to be the center of heaven so before india was broken before india was occupied by the turks and then by the by the europeans when india was still free the chinese had the greatest of respect and admiration from india for india there was one way transfer of culture and civilization from india to china There is absolutely no transfer of Chinese values, Chinese culture, Chinese traditions, Chinese religion, values, anything into India. But if you look at Chinese history in the past 1500 years or so, you will see so much of Indian culture that has been transferred into China and they were thankful for it. They used to send their monks and travelers to India to get more texts. Vedic texts, Buddhist texts, philosophical texts, spiritual texts and they used to request Indian kings to send Indian scholars to China. And that's how you have people like Nagarjuna, uh, Bodhidharma, the great uh, Dhyana master and the father of Kung Fu etc. So China gained so much from India and they had so much respect for India they, that they called India Tianju, the center of heaven. Today India is a different country. India is no longer a dharmic country today. India is a broken, mentally colonized, mediocre country of low standards, unfortunately. It is still a nation of great people, but the people don't realize their greatness. So today China thinks of India as a mediocre country. They don't hate India. They simply have a great deal of contempt for India. And they are quite justified in that. So my message to all of you is please raise your standards. You have greatness in your ancestry. You all have greatness in your genetics, in your blood. Please rediscover this greatness. Raise your standards. Reject mediocrity. Okay. Uh, Shashank says, is information rather than energy, the basic constituent of reality? Could all elementary particles observed be quantized manifestations of information embedded inside God consciousness? So, until the last two words you were talking science, now you're talking spirituality. (laughs) You know, there is something called information theory, which actually can be a good representation of reality as as we see it. So, it is Certainly a very worthwhile and a very serious um, avenue for scientific investigation and research, theoretical physics, and also in computer science. So this is where computer science kind of uh, converges with theoretical physics in information theory. Especially in black hole physics and all that, you have a great deal of uh, applications of information theory, entropy, and all that so it is certainly possible that uh, information rather than energy could be the basic constituent of reality yes but i don't know about god consciousness god now see god is spirituality and philosophy it is not science so let's not merge the, the two things i have the greatest of respect for philosophy for spirituality for religion especially indian civilization and dharmic culture and religion okay But from a scientific perspective, we don't discuss God, it's it's as simple as that. How do you define God consciousness from from the perspective of physics? You simply cannot. Forget about God consciousness, you can't even define human consciousness from the perspective of physics or science. So when you have something that is not a scientific concept, you cannot mix it with science. It's, It's just like that, right? So to answer the first part of the question, it is certainly possible. Yes, that information could be the basis of reality. What Bhushan says, what happened if Russia invaded Ukraine? And why Putin wants to invade Ukraine? Okay, so there is the situation going on right now in Ukraine. There is this big Russian military presence on the borders of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is essentially threatening to invade. Why is it so? It's because Russia considers Ukraine and the former USSR republics to be part of its geopolitical sphere of influence and to be part of its red lines. Now, if NATO, which essentially is nothing but the US, tries to influence Ukraine, and if Ukraine tries to become a part of NATO, that will cross the the Russian red lines. So that's what Mr. Putin is saying. That if the West tries to influence Ukraine and tries to interfere in Ukraine beyond a certain point, there's going to be war. That's the red line you cannot cross. And the West, essentially the US, is trying to test Mr. Putin's red lines. So that's where we are right now. So if the West persists in crossing the red lines, then you may, you may end up seeing a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then we we'll have to see how NATO responds. NATO, the European Union, essentially are just puppets of the US. You can consider them to be if you want to put it crudely vassal states of the united states so uh, mr putin doesn't really want to invade ukraine but he has to draw certain red lines mm-hmm. if you don't res- if you don't draw and respect your own red lines then people are going to keep on in- encroaching into your sphere of influence and eventually you'll become powerless and you will lose all sovereignty so that's why the situation currently exists and it could it could turn into a big conflagration possibly if certain things happen, if certain actions are taken. All right. <clears throat> okay. How can you be sure about India being the original founder zone when India and Persia when when Iran and Persia are closer to Africa? Okay, first of all, Iran and Persia are not two different things, they're the same thing. And how am I sure about India being the original founder zone because we have archaeological evidence and we have genetic evidence. The genetic evidence is the diversity of genetics that you find in India. India has the highest genetic diversity and the oldest genetic lineages outside of Africa that proves that India is the original founder zone. Now, These are some some basic simple concepts of genetics that you have to understand in order to understand the argument I am making. And the facts I'm presenting before you. So any region which has high genetic diversity indicates a high genetic diversity indicates presence of population for a longer time. The higher the diversity, the older the population. It's as simple as that. There is a basic fundamental law in genetics. So India in the entire world on the entire planet has the second highest genetic diversity in the world outside of Africa and the oldest genetic lineages outside of Africa which demonstrates that India is the original out of Africa founder zone. Sure, Iran Persia is closer to Africa and yet the highest diversity is in India. Why? Because Persia Essentially, if you look at the terrain and all that, it was a desert at the time. Only the coastal coastal regions had vegetation. But the Indian subcontinent was rich. It was lush. It had beautiful climate. It had fertile soil. It had a great deal of vegetation. It could sustain a large population. So after all these migrations, after this long migration, the first place where humanity settled down properly was the Indian subcontinent. So we have genetic evidence for that, we also have archaeological evidence for that, that goes back 70 plus thousand years. right? So the Indian population which settled down, the the human population that settled down in India at the time, it was able to survive the Toba volcanic explosion, the volcanic eruption of the Toba volcano which was an enormously cataclysmic event. The Indian population was able to survive that. There is genetic, there is archaeological evidence also for that. So based on all of this evidence, I am able to say to all of you that India is the original out of Africa founder zone. And I would encourage all of you to do a little bit of your own research, all the information is available in the public domain. Look up some genetic research papers, archaeological research papers, not Wikipedia but actual research and you will see what I'm, I've been saying all this time. And otherwise, uh, listen to some experts. So on Tuesday, the third episode of my podcast is going to uh, premiere on this channel. It is with Dr. Neeraj Rai, who is one of the world's leading experts in archaeogenetics and population genetics and molecular biology. If you don't believe me, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. Right? <clears throat> <laughs> Shubham says, "Is Russia really India's friends? Uh, r- really India's friend? Listen, my dear friends, you and me we can be friends, but in geopolitics there are no friends. There are allies and adversaries. Alliances are temporary. Adversarial relationships are also temporary." Everything is temporary in geopolitics. There are no friendships in geopolitics. If you believe somebody is your friend, you are the stupidest person in the world. I'm not saying this personally to anyone. I'm just saying that as somebody who is a national leader, if you believe, as the head of your nation, that somebody is your friend, you are the silliest person in the world. There are no friendships in geopolitics. All right? So, India and Russia have very good relations. And historically, over the past 60-70 plus years, we have had excellent relations with Russia, with the USSR. But see how things changed after the 1990s. All that warmth disappeared. Especially during the uh, regime of Mr. Boris Yeltsin, the Russians essentially abandoned India. Right. Today, under Mr. Vladimir Putin, there is a much better understanding of each other's uh, situation. And there is again a significant convergence of interests. Things are complicated, of course. There is China in the way. Russia needs China more than India right now because of the actions of the US. But in the long run, Russia and India are closer allies, in my opinion, than the Russia-China relationship. So what I would say is that there are no friendships, no friendships in geopolitics. Indians don't understand this. Oh, we love this country. We love that country. They are our friends. Come on. For instance, let me give an example. Indians have this great love for some reason for Israel. I also admire Israel. Israel is a very admirable country. But loving that country? Come on. See, try and examine Israel's geopolitical moves. They tried their best to become allies with China 10-15 years ago. It is the Americans that prevented them from doing it. The Chinese were very interested in, in, in Israeli technology, weapon systems and the Israelis were very happy to sell it to China for money. The Americans prevented Israel from doing this. After that, India and Israel's relations grew much better. After that. So, is is, is Israel India's friend or is it an alliance of convenience? Ask yourselves. I personally admire the Israeli people. But it doesn't mean that we should start loving the nation of Israel and thinking they are our friends. It's not friendship, it's an alliance. Because our interests currently align. But it is not going to remain this way forever. Things may change. So please look at the world from a realistic perspective, not from an idealistic emotional perspective. This is something Indians need to learn. Please learn this my dear friends. uh what was the question i saw something else okay what could be the philosophical reason for the decline of bharat the decline of bharat is not a philosophical decline it's a material decline and therefore the religi- the reasons are also material the decline of bharat happened in the past 1000 years why did it happen it's because we allowed barbarians to invade and occupy us. Now I am not calling somebody barbarians because of their religion or their blood or their ancestry. I am calling people barbarians based on their actions. Okay, so the Turks because of their actions in India were barbarians in my opinion. The Europeans because of their actions in India, genocide, destruction, plunder, they were also barbarians. So why did India Decline the way it did in the past 1000 years because these barbarians caught us at the wrong time when there was a lack of political unity in India. If India was unified under a single political system, let's say under somebody like Chandragupta Maurya or Kanishka or, or Skanda Gupta or, or Kumar Gupta or Samudra Gupta or under the Cholas, if they had been able to unify the whole of India, then this would not have happened. So the Reason for the decline of Bharat is that we were undergoing a phase, a period when we were fragmented. When you had lots of small kingdoms who did not fight together in uh, destroying, in defeating the foreign invaders. So there is no philosophical reason for it. It's it's a simple political reason. When you are united and we, when you have a strong centralized system, nobody can defeat you when you are weak when you are a soft state when you have political disunity like you have today you can again be, be colonized so that's the reason why we were uh why why our civilization declined okay what else do we have do we have anything else what who is single <laughs> Are aliens present in Kongha La Pass in Ladakh? Well, I'll go and find out. All right? <laughs> I would love to go and find out. And I hope they are double vaccinated and they're wearing masks. I hope so. <laughs> uh, who is George Soros? Why is he interfering in Indian Indian internal matters? George Soros is an alien. And uh, he has been allowed uh, alive for about 2,000 years, I think, and He's interfering in India on behalf of of a secret society, I guess. (laughs) Listen, I don't know, man. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, where else are we? Do we have anything? um, Any other questions? There are, of course, hundreds of questions. Excuse me? Listen... uh, i would appreciate better language consider this to be a warning sir please don't do this okay let me take a couple more questions before we are done my views on acharya prashant prashant I, I am not uh, familiar with this gentleman so unfortunately i can't say uh, my views on Dr. Ambedkar versus Mr. Gandhi. I think uh, Dr. Ambedkar's views on Mr. Gandhi are very, very, <laughs> very inconvenient. Mr. Ambedkar had the profoundest contempt for Mr. Gandhi. And it is very clear in the writings of Mr. Ambedkar. So you can look that up. It's very interesting to read. All right. <clears throat> Uh, okay, where do we what else do we have? Do we have anything uh, uh, If the childhood of a great leader is very immoral, will it hurt the country's image? Should a leader's past matter if they changed from what they were in their childhood? Why are we concerned about the nation's image? what what really matters is not how other people perceive you. What matters is how powerful you are, how independent you are, how prosperous you are and what sort of living standards and governance you have. Your image doesn't matter. Who cares what the British think of us or the French think of us? Who cares what the Arabs think of us? It doesn't matter. It is not of any importance what anyone thinks of the country's image. If you are prosperous and powerful, your image is the greatest. No matter what sort of uh, leader you have or whatever. And, and I'll, I'll tell you something, a leader's personal life typically doesn't matter. Look at the, the father of Turkey, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century. A man who brought Turkey ba- back from the brink of destruction, who fought against foreign occupation and who won. Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, one of the greatest generals in military history and one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century. If you look at his personal life, he was a terrible human being. He had no friends. He was an alcoholic. He drank himself to death. He had no friends. The way he treated women was terrible. But he dedicated his entire life to the service of his country. That cannot be denied. He was not a good person, from a personal perspective. But as a leader, the Turks could not have asked the gods for any better leader. So you know what? It doesn't matter what sort of personal life a leader lives, as long What what really matters is does he or she serve the country effectively or not. That's all that matters. So a leader's past doesn't matter. A leader's personal life doesn't matter. All that matters is whether he or she carries out his duty or her duty as a leader effectively or not. That's all that matters. All right. All right. Okay. I think that brings us to the end of today's session. Thank you so much. This was a very interesting session. Very interesting questions, some of them. So wonderful, great, great fun. And we shall continue doing this. So next week, a couple of new podcasts will make their appearance on this channel and uh, we, we shall continue these q and a sessions going forward as always so until then until until then take care thank you everyone thank you very much i appreciate your questions i thank you for your viewership and your support and i will see you very soon take care bye